sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. My two top strengths are competition and significance. I love to compete. I love to win. I love to be top of the scoreboard, crush all the measures, win the president's club, right? All the bonuses. I like the limelight on me, the focus and the attention. Those are not bad competencies for a great salesperson. I think generally they're horrible competencies for a sales leader. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Scott Miller. Scott's the author of the book, From Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. He is also the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey. And Scott's joining me today on Sales Enablement, Episode 792, to talk about management development, using himself as the case study, because he was the management mess referred to in the title of his book. Scott and I are going to dig into his story and his journey, his ongoing journey, if you will, become the leader you would follow. And as you'll learn, people will forgive a lot of bad behaviors if you're a top performer, but only up to a point. And we'll get into Scott's keys for personal growth, including humility and character and how scarcity thinking stands in your way. And we have a really interesting discussion around that. We'll also explore why it's important to keep things simple and direct, make it easy to be understood. You know, a lot of great lessons there for dealing with people that are not only relevant to managing, but also apply directly to how you deal with your prospects and your buyers, which is no surprise because Scott started his career in sales. So all of this and much, much more. Before we get to Scott, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thanks. And if you haven't already connected with me on LinkedIn, go to linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. That's right. Beware of the fake Andy Pauls out there. That's linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it with Scott Miller. Scott Miller, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for the invite and the platform. Well, my pleasure to have you. So um, you're based where? Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt right Lake by the capital, downtown Salt Lake City. Yeah. Been there many times. So um, what's it like there? And then, yeah, we're recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's sort of unavoidable. We have to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to. I think it's probably, you know, the best place you could be in the nation. I mean, you know, Frank or uh, Utah is known as a very well-prepared state. It's ar- arguably one of the most well-run states by those, you know, surveys. A very conservative state, primarily occupied by you know members of the Mormon community, known as uh, 
Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So there's a lot of preparation mentality out here. So right. like everybody, my wife and I kind of shut down about five weeks ago. We have three young boys, five, eight, and nine. So we're blessed to have a large home and a big yard. So I think compared to some like you that are in a smaller, you know, inter- <laughs> um, downtown Manhattan apartment, we're quite yeah. blessed and we're um, healthy. So um, we're not sure if it's come and gone or if it's not come yet. We're just doing our share and staying home and, you know, listening to wise people tell us what to do. All right. So we're going to talk about your book today from, well, I think it, I had the title here, From Management Mess to Leadership Success. So uh, as I saying before, it's sort of a brave book to write because that management mess was you, right? It's true. I mean, not in every case, <laughs> but the, the majority of the book is about after 30 years as a leader in a very prominent leadership development firm, I decided to write a book about how hard leadership is and how it's not for everyone. Not everyone should be a leader. Heck, I'm not sure, Andy, I should have been a leader of people, but I am and I have been. And I've done some damage and I've created some success. And so I decided to write a book that would help others determine should they be a leader of people and if they are or they want to be, here's 30 challenges you're going to face. And most of them for me were messes. I, I think that generally speaking, vulnerability, to quote you, bravery, but I'd say vulnerability is a leadership competency. And as a leader of people, the more you can own your own mess, because I don't know of a leader who doesn't have some mess going on or parent or neighbor or mother-in-law or son-in-law, the more you can own your mess, the more you make it safe for others to own up to theirs and move towards success. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is is that, first of all, perfection is impossible in any any realm, but especially in leadership. I mean, because leadership is just an extension of, of uh, you know, who we are as humans and our human conduct, and we're never perfect. Or far from. I, I don't know any leaders that's even close to being perfect. No leader I've worked for, and I still have leaders that I report to that, you know, have blind spots and aren't as self-aware as we all hope they would be, and and, and ever, have other great talents. So the book really was inspired because I was I, I host a podcast like you called On Leadership with Scott Miller. I was interviewing Stephen M. R. Covey. He's the mm-hmm. son of the famed Dr. Covey. He's been he on the, the show. Book. Oh, has he? No kidding. Yes, yeah. So yeah. you know him well and wrote the book, The Speed of Trust. And I was interviewing Stephen, of course, a friend and a colleague of mine and said, Stephen, did you ever feel the need to write a book, right? Being the son of Dr. Covey he said, no, Scott, because, you know, I really didn't have anything to say until I did, meaning him. And, right. I, and I, had this, I had this epiphany. You know what? I never had much to say. I was always kind of a behind-the-scenes executive officer, chief marketing officer, sales vice president, sales manager, general manager. And then I realized, you know what? I do have some things to say now. So I wrote this book. It did extraordinarily well in its first printing. It's already in its second printing. And I'm quite delighted with um, how well it's resonated. Yeah, so it seems like for a little bit in the book is it's it's kind of confessional, right? I mean, we say confession is good for the soul, but but I think there had to be an aspect of that, right? Because as you go back and you you said you have these thirty challenges, yeah, there's numerous points in the book, and I was thinking, reflecting on my own <laughs> own leadership failures over the years and successes, is that yeah, it's it's such a growth process that you never really perfect it, as I said before, and um. Yeah, we all make mistakes that if we were better off if you said vulnerable and, and came clean on them. It's very confessional. Uh, I'm a Catholic, so that was easy for me, right? So it was easy for me to, you know, uh, write down what I'd done wrong. It wasn't meant to be a tell-all or, you know, 
uh, literary vomit by any means. In fact, I, I share some successes and there's an occasional success story. And I've had lots of success stories, but I believe philosophically, we all learn more from our mistakes, from our messes, from watching other people's messes. I actually learn more from seeing people fail and get back up and try again than I had trying to replicate something someone did really well. I just think that's been my own learning journey. So I wrote the book as a gift to hopefully every leader that would like to avoid some of the pitfalls I've had, you know, now at the age of 52, um, older than some, not as old as others, but had a pretty uh, a successful career by many measures. I'm an sure. officer in a public company and I've learned a lot, not, not, not to mention being around, you know, a lot of fairly famed thought leaders and, and authors. So I, right. I meant it to be a help, a tome that would be relatable, raw, real. I thought too many leadership books are academic and they're maybe professorial. They're written by people who is hard to relate to, and I wanted to write a relatable book. Well, I think you succeeded in that. I mean, I, one of the, the key things I think as you look read through the book is is that you know people have different trajectories in their career, and and you know use you as an example, and I maybe use myself as an example is had pretty good success at a pretty early age. And then you find you find yourself in these these management roles, these leadership roles, and your job competence outstripped your leadership competence. Welcome to my entire career, right? And the, and but I think this is really common. And and so we in sales, you came through the sales the sales ranks. I did. Is there's always this trope about you know, hey, don't promote your best seller to be a manager because oftentimes you know they can't do it. Blah 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 blah. But it's sort of forgetting the aspect of, well, yeah, there's that management thing, but here's the leadership thing, which is separate from managing. And so – Yeah. Can I riff on that? Yeah. Go ahead, please. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's great insight in what you said because that principle doesn't always apply. Here, here's what I've learned, Andy, and much of what you just said you know, very succinctly is I think too often organizations promote people for the wrong reasons. We, we lure people into leadership roles versus lead them in. Mm-hmm. That we promote, we promote the, you know, the, the best individual performers, right? The most efficient dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer or the most revenue producing salesperson. We do that all the time. Well, I think there's great risk in that. I mean, I was a classic example of the highest producing revenue producer in my division. So mm-hmm. naturally, at some point, I'm promoted as the sales leader. When rarely do the skills, the competencies that make you a great sales producer make you a great sales leader. That there's very little correlation, right? I mean, if you look at my Gallup Strengths Finder, my two top strengths are competition and significance. Right? I love to compete. I love to win. I love to be top of the scoreboard, crush all the measures, win the president's club, right? All the bonuses. I like the limelight on me, the focus and the attention. Those are not bad competencies for a great salesperson. I think generally they're horrible competencies for a sales leader. (laughs) Sales leaders need to be patient and empathic and need to recognize that their job is to get work done with and through other people, skill transfer, coach, mentor, to teach other people, to build capacity, to check their own ego and take joy and validation in the success of other people. Your job is not to rush in and save the day or save the sale or save someone from themselves. You might save the sale today, but you aren't building capacity. You're not no. building the ability for other people to you know, all achieve their own numbers. So I think, I think a key 
differentiator is when you're considering promoting a salesperson into a sales leadership role, or for that matter, anybody into a sales leadership role. Recognize that the science shows the average age someone receives their first promotion into management is the age 30. HBR wrote an article about this a year ago. And the average age that that same person receives their first leadership training, age 42. (laughs) I was going to say 50, but... (laughs) Yeah, 42, right? So, I mean, what you've got is these otherwise, you know, well-intended, high-producing people wrecking havoc across cultures and, you know, doing damage across people, not because they're sociopaths or because they're bad people. No, they're Scott Miller. They're high-producing, well-intended people that don't know how to lead other people. They don't know how to get somebody else to achieve the same results. They think their job is to turn everybody else into their clone or their mini-me. So they go out, you know, killing people's self-confidence, trying to turn them into versions of themselves. And not every case. I think an easy way to turn the tide on that is the next time you want to promote someone into a leadership role, be it sales or otherwise, sit them down and have a crucial high stakes conversation. Hey, Andy, as you know, you're our top salesperson and we're considering promoting you to be a sales leader. Let me tell you, Andy, on this chart pad behind me, I've drawn a T-chart. On the left side, these are the seven things that you do really well. Andy, quite frankly, you're best of class. You crush these as a salesperson. And Andy, of these seven things, you literally have to stop doing four of them the day you become a sales leader. Mm -hmm. Because what got you here isn't going to take you there. And here on the other side of the T-chart, Andy, are nine new leadership competencies that you currently, quite frankly, don't possess. That's okay. No problem. We trust you. We're going to invest in you. We're going to have a series of high courage conversations with you and coach you in real time. But literally, you will need to stop doing these four or five things and begin doing these seven or eight things quite quickly, not tomorrow, but in the coming days and weeks and months. I don't think enough leaders have that courageous, uncomfortable conversation with potential new leaders. If someone had done that to me, I would have better realized, oh, you know what? That makes sense. Thank you. Not everyone's job is to do this, this, and this. I do that uniquely. I can't force that into anyone. Oh, my job is to build their self-confidence. Oh, I see. My job is to allow them to fail a couple of times and then have a really gracious but brutal conversation around what went right, what went wrong, give feedback, accept feedback. So I think there's that little bit that could vastly change the trajectory of people moving into management on their way to leadership. Right. There are a lot of words in there. Let's talk about some of those. Is So you talked about the lack of training, right? We don't. So for me, one of the big issues with leadership, to your point precisely, as well as management, is lip service at best provided to training people in either of those disciplines. Um I mean, gosh, I I had one management try. I got promoted early, like at 23, to be a sales manager working for a big computer company. And I got two weeks of training. And that was it. Right? And that's been it through my entire career. Now, a good chunk of my career was with you know, venture-funded startups. Yeah, training just didn't occur, right? I mean, you had hopefully you had a mentor that could help you. In my case, I was fortunate. But, but we put people in these roles, and then we just strand them. Well, I think two weeks is quite generous. I think you're fortunate <laughs> to have, you know, focused on that. I think that, that I was think 40, that was right. 42 years ago. I yeah. hear you, sir. I, I think that, generally speaking, 
I think I would conduct less training on broad skills and more what will actually move lead measures, right? I don't know that salespeople always understand their company's money-making model and they understand a P&L and profitability and margin, no, they don't. right? That's, and that's one of the problems. They don't have the business acumen they need. That's exactly right. So if, I mean, if I was leading a sales organization and I have, and I might someday again, I would make sure that you know beyond just product knowledge, right? Or selling skills, I would make sure that our sales performers really understand what is our company's money-making model and they understand the profitability and the expense of you know selling to clients that we don't want because not every client's a great client for us for our brand for our fit reputation for our business model so exactly. i think it's really important to make sure that we train and we educate and it may be on a variety of things right it might be on eq skills might be on you know intuition it might be on establishing rapport and understanding the behaviors of trusted partners how important it is to both meet your quarterly monthly sales commitments but also not sell solutions to clients that aren't going to end up repeating or referring or being our champion there's so many there's so many skills to teach i would prioritize them typically always around you know what do we need you to go out and do so that our company can thrive and, and build a thriving career for you? I think too often we train on technical skills and features and benefits when, in fact, a lot of salespeople leave a lot of business on the floor because they lack the ability to understand really what is the job to be done, what is the client really hiring your solution to do. And Clayton Christensen, who passed recently, right. prolific author, researcher, right. speaker, member of our board, right? I mean, he he didn't invent, but he popularized in his writings this idea that people don't hire you and they're not hiring a screwdriver, right? Or a drill. They're hiring you to place their photo on the wall, right? So when they go to the hardware store, they're hiring a three-inch hole, right? Not a three-inch drill. And that's a cliche now, but I think it's important, right, to really help your salespeople understand what is your client's problem and is your solution the right fit? And don't sell them something. But if we get back term. to that business acumen thing, though, just sorry to interject, but it's just because I think no, it's please. important to, to lay out is that, yeah, I, one of the real shortcomings is, you know, CEO and sales, CEOs overwhelmingly say that they, I think it was Gartner's survey, is like 80% of CEOs said they found no value in meeting with salespeople. It's true. And it's and it's not only because the salespeople don't understand how their own company makes money, it's they don't have the acumen to understand how their customers make money. And so this this how this double-sided thing where we're not not educating our sellers, to your point precisely, we think it's enough to say, here's the sales process. I'll teach you in the mechanics of the sales process and technology we use to execute it. But I'm not going to teach you things that really have value to the customer. I think that's why some of your most effective salespeople have an insatiable curiosity, right? They're, they're more curious about their customer's quarterly goal than they are their own. They're more invested in helping their customer meet their annual revenue goal than they are meeting their own. It's a great question to ask, right? Is ask all your salespeople. So raise your hand. Who can tell me your own quarterly goal? Well, I hope every hand would go up. Mm -hmm. Keep your hand raised if you can tell me the quarterly goal of your top customer. And I'll bet yeah. you every hand would go down. And that's a mindset shift, right? That, that's, a, a, that's a belief system is if you believe, and this is, can be cliche-ish, right? Because you can, you can customer service yourself out of a job if you don't eventually sell something, right? Or you can ask so many questions and peel the onion to the core where there's nothing left to dip your chip in or put in your burger. 
But this, this requires a mindset shift for your salespeople to be obsessed with their customer's performance or obsessed with researching their prospect and not just looking at the website and, you know, but I mean, like deeply looking at their 10K and their 10Q and their inner report and their last investor call and really deeply understanding what the prospect or the client is trying to accomplish and try to find a good match. Yeah. Well, even if they're not a public company and you don't have access to those, those, those filings, you still ask the questions, right? Without, to your point, without peeling the onion all the way to the nub, it's just how you start that conversation. You have it, but we're not, this is my point. I'd sort of, in the book, I thought one of the things that I, I wanted to see more of is this idea of you know, how, how should we be investing in developing our people? I mean, you have a lot about coaching in there, but the you know, problem in sales and the sales world in particular is coaching's really become this bastardized term, right? Is It doesn't mean what people think it means. It's become taken over by the people who think it means, I'm just going to coach you how to win this deal, right? It's become opportunity coaching as opposed to yeah, how, well, like Michael Bungay-Sanier has in his book, The Coaching Habit, which is all around development of the individual. And their abilities to solve problems. Right. I mean, to your point, I mean, this is a broad topic, right? Coaching's taken on a life of its own, you know, player coach, coach as leader, you know, it, it, beyond. You know, we look at the sales force at Franklin Covey. I mean, as you look at, we have a you know, large sales force. We have, you know, mm-hmm. 200 boots in the ground here in the right. U.S., another, you know, 40 or 50 in the education system. So a sales force of 250, not massive, but, you know, a Good sizable size. organization. Yeah, it takes probably uh, you know three hires to keep one, right? We lose about a about two thirds of all new hires, and that's probably you know better than some industries, worse than others. We start with fit, right? We really start to make sure that there's a cultural fit, that we're the right fit for them, and they're the right fit for us, and that they really have passion around our mission. That we communicate our mission. We set really clear standards around behaviors, activities around understanding the mechanics of, you know, the sales process to your point, but also really, you know, really searching, like I said before, for curiosity. You know, do, do these people have an insatiable desire to help their clients succeed? Perhaps even- How do you screen for that? How do you screen for that? That's a, I mean, this is a great question for me because I, yeah, I, I have written about this, this, use this exact term. I came out of college with no discernible job skills, except I had an insatiable curiosity and a competitive streak a mile wide. So I went into sales. Uh, and you know, for me, those are like the two basic things you need to have is insatiable curiosity. But how do you how do you screen for that when you're hiring? Because this this comes up all the time. Yeah, I think a lot of questions. I mean, I think questions I'd ask is, you know, tell me the five books you're reading right now. And don't tell me the Bible. I mean, literally, you know, what 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 three newspapers did you look at this week? What what tell me the 10 magazines that you're subscribing to? Now, don't tell me you're listening to podcasts and you subscribe to blogs. I mean, I want to hear more than that, right? Tell me some examples of when you know, you went into a client. What, what does that look like when you go in? What do you take with you? What kind of questions do you ask? And by the way, I'm looking for self-awareness. You know, mm-hmm. you may ask very few questions. You might just be listening. What kind of, what is your, what is your prep process? What is your research process? You, you can learn a lot about someone by just letting them kind of, you know, trip all over themselves. So I think one of the ways you screen is by really understanding what, what is the way they develop their own skills. Most people I work with don't read a lot. <laughs> I think really? Reading, even even well, a Covey? Well, I think I think the younger generation is now moving towards, you know, podcasts and the web. And I mean, you know, I, I like you, I host a podcast every week. I've read four books this week. 
because I've had four interviews. Like I literally cover to cover have read four 230 page books because I had four interviews for my podcast. And you would recognize four of the books that if I mention them right now, but I think as a salesperson, the more hmm. well, and one of them wasn't mine. One of them was not yours because I did not interview you this week. But if I do, I would read your book cover to cover. Let me, let me share a great example of curiosity, right? I was interviewing Brian Grazier, the famous um, Hollywood producer, director, yep. writer, author. And he wrote a book, A Curious Mind. Yeah. And I strongly advocate that book to your audience. And he wrote a story in this book about how, I don't know, a decade ago, Brian Grazier was doing some research for a movie he was considering optioning, if I had the story right. And so he found Isaac Asimov, right? The famous, I think was a physicist, scientist, author of dozens of books, right? If you were were under the age of, uh, or over the age of 30, you know who Isaac Asimov is. And he passed away, I don't know, five, six years ago or so. Anyway, Brian Grazier, through his... his clout got Isaac Asimov to go to lunch with him. And Isaac Asimov brought with him his wife, his current wife. I think mm-hmm. he had several. I think he had many. And midway through the luncheon conversation, Brian Grazier, this famed, you know, Imagine Entertainment, Ron Howard, you know, huge list, huge list of major motion pictures to his credit. Midway through the lunch, Brian Grazier is asking Isaac Asimov questions. The wife stands up and basically says, this meeting is over. This is a waste of our time. You clearly have not done the research on my husband's work by the nature of your questions to warrant this meeting going any further. And they got up and they walked out. And they left (laughs) Brian Grazier sitting there at the luncheon table. I think it was the Ritz or something, some hotel in New York City. And of course, who wouldn't be offended? Right. And in Brian Grazier's, you know, humility, he says, you know what? She was right. And he said, since then, it has instilled in me a level of preparation, pre-work, research, curiosity to make sure that I, de- that I deserve the attention, whoever I'm sitting in front of. And it had a profound impact on me that now whenever I podcast or, or have a podcast, I also host a radio program, iHeartRadio, and I interview people, they deserve me to read their book and watch four or five interviews on you know, other podcasts they've been on and look at, and look at some of their white papers. And I, and I do my best to spend you know, multiple hours prepping for a 30-minute conversation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't sure. do it all as well as I'd like, but I think that same skill should be transferred over into every salesperson. I once heard Rudy Giuliani back before he went sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, man, he's just, he, he, just, he disappeared, didn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. He's loving the coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> Greatest gift, uh, Rudy Giuliani, was the coronavirus. I, I, I used to be a big Rudy Giuliani fan. I am not anymore. Yeah, me too. He lost me my too. respect. Yeah. But I was a big follower of hers, his. And I know his career. I heard him speak once at the World Business Forum. And Andy, he said that as a federal prosecutor, he was a very very successful federal prosecutor in New York City. He said yes. he he spent for every one hour litigating the courtroom. He spent three hours back in his office preparing for the trial, and that always set set me as for every you know one hour in front of a client, you ought to be doing three hours of preparation, learning, listening, fine tuning your skills, making sure you have a system to capture all they're saying, and you aren't asking dumb questions like. Well, so tell me your goals for the year. And I read your annual report and I see where growth. What keeps you up at night? The worst question. What keeps you up at night? Or, yeah, how many people work here? I mean, you know what? <laughs> Good grief. 
What are so your I pain, hope I, 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 I mean all that to be inspiring. What are your pain points, right? <laughs> Good grief. I want, right. that question, I want that question banned from sales. <laughs> no one would dare ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> What's my pain point? Meeting payroll next week. What do you got for me, right? I mean, come right. on. So. But I think what you're talking about, though, is this, this desire to prepare, is, which I, I agree with you 100% on that. And I do that for, I think, one of the things that sets this show apart in the sales realm from all the others is that I do read the books. I do prepare. I've got a whole you know, five pages of questions here that we, if we had a two hours, we'd spend talking about. But it's it's not just respect. I think it's also something you talk about in the book, quite frankly, is, is humility. It's not the assumption that I know enough to have this conversation without preparing. It's not enough to, you know, it's, it's, I think this one thing, a huge failing on the part of, of too many salespeople is this assumption that you know, we've prepared them with personas and we, you know, we know what they're, they, what the customer thinks and feels supposedly at every set. So, so if I ask you something, I sort of know what you're going to tell me ahead of time. I have two quick thoughts on that. Uh, Jim Collins and I have become friends through mm-hmm. our company. He's a dear friend of our CEO. And one of the wisest things I've ever heard Jim Collins say, and this is pretty profound, and that is spend less time being interesting and more time being interested. Yes. Well, it's how you make yourself interesting. Yeah, that, that's a, yeah. Or, 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 you know, be interesting at cocktail parties, but be interested <laughs> when you're sitting with a client. And I think right. that's, a, that's a profound mantra for salespeople to remember. The second thing came from another friend of mine, Liz Wiseman, right? She wrote a book mm-hmm. called Multipliers. Phenomenal right. book. She endorsed Management Mess. Franklin Covey now has the license to her content. But Liz Wiseman really taught me the concept and, and millions of others around stop being the genius, but rather be the genius maker. And I think I spent too many years of my career trying to be the smartest person in the room, trying to be the genius in the room. I have a great story if we have time for it around some humility I learned from reading Liz's book. But I think great leaders, great sales leaders, great sales professionals aren't trying to be the genius, but they're trying to be the genius maker. Your intent, your mindset, your belief system, your, your, your motivation is to make your client a genius in their organization. That really changes everything you do, how you spend your time, your motivation when you call them, how you help build up their credibility, how you make them win. And the same thing goes for the people that work for you. Right? Is you want to make them geniuses within the organization. You want to, you can make them win the same thing, right? Can I build on that? Yeah, go ahead. You know, I'm 52. I was the chief marketing officer for Franklin Covey. You know, this was a legit, legitimate job. And I owned the brand for the whole firm. I also was at the same time the EVP of business development. So while I didn't own sales, I owned, you know, keeping the revenue pipeline mm-hmm. going for the company worldwide. Right. And I always felt like as the chief marketing officer, my job was to be the smartest person in the room. There was a joke, best idea wins as long as it's Scott's. And so I (laughs) felt like my job, my contribution was to be the most creative, the most hardworking, the most uh, insightful, the most well-read. And in some case, as a chief marketing officer, you'd hope that you'd have some contribution. You know, after reading Liz Wiseman's book, Multiplier, I realized Oh my gosh! I've done a disturb. I've done a disservice to our entire team, to our clients, to our company, to our shareholders. That my job is not to be the smartest person in the room. My job is to be humble enough, confident enough, that I am secure enough to go out and hire people who are palpably more capable than me. That are that are 
noticeably more talented. I think for too many years, Andy, I hired people who were nice and amiable and competent, but that they that I did not think they were smarter than me because mm-hmm. I feared that they would eclipse me. Now, they probably were more competent than I gave them credit for. But as I began to hit a turning point in my late 40s, frankly, early 50s, I realized, oh, crap, that's not my job. My job is to actually go out and find the world's best expert on Salesforce.com, the expert on Google Analytics or on Marketo or on marketing automation, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and bring them in and let them immediately eclipse me. Let everybody realize everybody here is smarter than Scott. Scott's job is to build a culture where he can recruit them and retain them. And so that's a massive, massive mindset shift for me. And I'd say to sales leaders as well, don't be threatened by hiring more competent salespeople than you. Go after them and you know lay down the red carpet. And your job is to not just get them in, but keep them by training them, by educating them, by cutting out the red tape and the bureaucracy and making sure they have all the tools they need to go out and crush it for you. Make sure every one of your salespeople is a better salesperson at some point than you are. That should be your job. They should be earning more money than you if you're doing your job right. Well, let me let me ask a question sorry to expand on that. Because one of the things that you hear from millennials, a fair amount, is that we don't have enough opportunity because anytime a new job opens up, you know, management level or whatever, to hire in for it from the outside, as opposed to developing us and giving us those opportunities. And so it seems like part of the leader's job should be is, yeah, if I'm doing my job well, is I should have a higher fraction of people that I'm developing and promoting into these roles rather than having to recruit from outside. Unless it's you know something new, distinct competence, or something that's not in the company. But in general, you know, there's a sort of groundswell that, yeah, give us a shot at those jobs. Are you, are you speaking about giving you a shot at leadership roles? Yeah. I mean, it's developing yeah. people into management and then into leadership roles is, you know, there's been research on this and, and I've had guests on the show have talked about it and I've, you know, talked to millennials about it as well. And, and you know, it's, I feel like anytime there's a, especially you see this in like tech startups, we need to bring a, get a higher new manager for sales. Oh, let's hire somebody from the outside. And, it, but it's not just startups. It, you see it in organizations more generally. Yeah, I think a couple of things on this, and this is not my expertise, but I do have 30 years of real experience facing this exact decision. So perhaps I do have some expertise. I don't care if you're inside or outside, right? My my, my job is to make sure that I'm hiring the person with the right leadership competencies. And leadership competencies draw upon not just technical skill set and not just interpersonal uh, immaturity, but also understanding our culture, our mission, how to get things done inside of our organization. I, I'll tell you, Franklin Covey, like every organization, has a very strong culture. We have very little success hiring in senior leaders from the outside because they can't thrive in the culture. Right. Because they can't understand, oh, how to get things done in this culture. So I, I so I'd say the vast majority of our senior and mid-level leaders have in fact been promoted internally because they had to learn the culture. The culture spits them out. The culture of a company is going to always be arguably bigger um, than bringing someone from the outside. I mean, look at Michael Ovitz, perfect mm-hmm. example at Disney, right? Perfect example. Yeah, it didn't culture work out. Sp- right? I mean, a guy with an insane career um, at CAA, right? It didn't last a year or two at Disney. It, it, Disney spit him out. 
In fact, I think it was the board that almost forced Michael Eisner to, to move him out. Yeah. And, and, and Michael Eisner's had, or Michael Ovitz had a good, has had, I think, a good career since then. So I, I think the, the question may be more about who, you know, what are the right leadership characteristics to promote in this particular culture? Because I might be really great at Franklin Covey. I don't think I'd be a great leader to be hired in Oracle. In fact, I think I'd be a horrible leader at Oracle. I might be a great leader at Red Cross. I don't know. So I think the fit both ways is important. You know, do you fit here and do we fit with you? I also think, and this is not in any way to diminish the younger audience, I do think that the younger audience can learn a valuable principle in life. And this is at millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Ys, Zs, the, the Corona generation, whatever we're going to call it in decade from now, is that there is this thing called the law of the harvest. And the law of the harvest is a principle that farmers have to follow. And that is there's a time to plant, there's a time to harvest. And that if you interview potato farmers from Idaho, they will tell you that every couple of years they don't plant potatoes. They in fact, they plant a money losing crop like alfalfa, where they don't make money on it because they have to put nutrients back in the ground in order for next year's potato crop to actually work because they've stripped the, the, the soil of its nutrients. Sure. And if they want to build and, 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 and grow a better crop next year, they have to follow the law of the harvest. So I'd convert that to great career advice, which is honestly, I think too many people of the younger generation try to harvest too soon. Now, it doesn't mean you stick around like me and be a dinosaur for 24 years. But you know what? I've had nine careers inside of Franklin Covey. Every right. three years, I disrupt myself and I move myself out of my job into a new job. Some of them have been lateral because I need to learn a new skill. I need to learn a new competency. Maybe I'm not ready, on, ready to take on that senior role yet. So I, I just tell people all the time uh, – what are you doing to build your own capability to make sure that you are a viable candidate for that leadership job? Because leadership really, leadership is about vulnerability and confidence and intuition, looking around corners, connecting with people, recognizing the difference between being efficient and being effective, slowing down with people, mm -hmm. recognizing that this idea that people are a company's most valuable asset, it's total bunk. It's not true. People are not a company's most valuable asset. It's the relationships between those people that are every organization's killer app. Because Andy can be a black belt in Six Sigma, and Scott can have a Rhodes Scholar degree from Oxford. But if Andy and Scott can't get along, we can't go on a client meeting together, we can't one-up each other, we can't compliment each other, pre-forgive each other, I don't need you. The same goes with sales, right? You can be the best rogue independent sales producer in the company, but if you can't be on time to staff meetings, you can't coach other people, you can't have an abundance mentality and lift others up, quite frankly, I'd rather take two B performers that are collaborative and trustworthy than one rogue A performer that's in and out, and I don't see her for another two or three weeks. And I've been through enough sales cycles, sales quarters to stand by that. Yeah, and I think there's something in what you were saying, too, that I think should be brought out is, is that you can't rely on the company to provide all that for you. You know, that you have to take responsibility, as you did. You, you've, you said you've had nine different you know, disruptions and you've re reinvented yourself. 
I look at my career, I've done it at least nine times. But I took the initiative to do that. I sat and read books at night. I listened to tapes in my car as I was driving, as I was learning how to sell, you know, all the Earl Nightingale tapes and Zig Ziglar tapes and so on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is um, yeah, I wasn't handed that. I I did it. And I think there's this perception that somehow the tools to enable you to become to achieve at a certain level are going to be handed to you. And I think the lesson I I I've always had in my career, and I think you've experienced it as well, is you have to find those tools yourself and enable yourself as much as you expect from the company. Andy, I could not believe believe that or support you any more than you just said it. And this isn't a, a, a diss on any generation or any demographic at all. I think you have to take control of your own career. You have to be responsible for your brand, your reputation. Take responsibility for your own professional development. Don't blame the company. Don't blame the culture. Don't blame the leaders. I, I don't blame anybody for any of my outcomes. I own every aspect of my outcome in life. I, I'm responsible for that. I always kick myself out of the job before I'm too stale in it. Mm -hmm. I always am one year ahead of the boot. I've seen too many people, including inside Franklin Covey, that overstay their job because it's good enough. It's comfortable when people are talking about it, right? And eventually they have to have a little bit of an awkward conversation. No, 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 no. Don't put your boss in that position. You take responsibility for your own role and you disrupt yourself when it's time for you to move on. I interviewed Whitney Johnson a few months ago. She wrote a book called Just That, Disrupt yeah, Yourself. She's, she's coming on in a couple of weeks. So. I wish, yeah, great, yeah. great interview. And Whitney talks about how you know the average lifespan most people have for a job is about three years. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean for a company or for a culture or for an industry. But I think the more people take responsibility for when are you getting stagnant and how much of that is your job to constantly reinvent your skills, educate yourself, train yourself. I mean, at Franklin Covey, I can't tell you the last time I've had some professional development. I'm an executive officer. I'm empowered to you know, do it on my own. But my CEO is not asking me to read the Wall Street Journal every day. He's not asking me to read Fortune and Forbes and Fast Company and Inc. and mm -hmm. Wired. That's my job, right? He's not yeah. asking me to get on a plane and go to the World Business Forum. Not everyone can afford to get on a plane. But I think people need to, like to your point, own your career, damn it, and own your own training and then hope for the best in your organization. But take responsibility. I would never complain about somebody else investment in me is just a mindset. No, no, no. I am Scott Inc. And my job is to be responsible for all of my actions and all of my outcomes. And if somebody else offers me something, then icing on the cake. Love it. All right. Well, Scott Inc., we're out of time. <laughs> Imagine that. Scott Miller talking too much. No, no. Believe me, it was, it was fine. It was fine. We had a great time. So, uh, tell people how they can contact you or learn more about your book. Yeah. My wife says it's kind of hard not to find me on the internet this day. Um, you can just Google Scott Miller, Franklin Covey. I've, I've actually authored two books now. I'm privileged to have both of them become bestsellers. The first, which was today's topic, was Management Mess to Leadership Success. You can find it on Amazon, every bookstore in America. Barnes & Noble has it. And the second book that I co-authored is called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. That also debuted as a number three in the Wall Street Journal list. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Kind of hard not to find me. Go to franklincovey.com and you'll find me there too. All right, Scott. 
Perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for the time, man. Appreciate it. We'll look forward to doing this again. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of our show. And I want to thank Scott Miller for sharing his insights and wisdom with us today. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you also for spending your time with us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.